Welcome to Between the Lines, which is a series of podcasts devoted to the pleasures of literary translation. It's organised by me, Tim Matthews, in UCL, and by Simon Cook in the University of Edinburgh. Today, I'm delighted to receive Clive Scott um, from the University of East Anglia, who has written and published and done a tremendous amount of work on translation, particularly the translation of French poetry, but also thinking about translation and the role of creativity in translation. I just want to mention a few of his books, Channel Crossings from 2000, Translating Baudelaire, Translating Les Illuminations, and Literary Translation and the Rediscovery of Reading of 2012, which we'll be concentrating a lot on today, as well as Translation and the Perception of Text, which is also from 2012, and as a reading of Merleau-Ponty, in the context of translation. So, Clive, I'm delighted to uh, be talking to you. Uh, it's the second time we've done something like this, yes. and, I'm, and uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for you to, to you for coming to talk to us about your tremendous work. Oh, um, I wonder if we could start in a very general way, and uh, it's a, almost a, uh, a question as large as light. Uh, what is it that uh, brought you towards translating in the first place and excited you as much as it clearly has? Um, well, I suppose I trace it, trace this interest back to the mid-1990s when our university, uh, East Anglia, went through one of its periodic uh, restructurings and the literature teachers in modern languages found themselves shifted into the School of English and American Studies. And that shift uh, actually brought me face-to-face -face with, I think, uh, two uh, large issues. One, since in the School of English and American Studies there was a thriving um, creative writing uh, sector, the question about what the relationship between translation and creative writing should be. The second uh, issue was connected with languages, I'd moved out of a school in which language competence was related very, very closely to um, traditional uh, modern honours language courses and to a situation in which, in fact, languages tended to be kept um, hermetically, more or less, sealed from each other. In the School of English and American Studies, um, I was faced with a kind of situation in which um, what uh, one could look for in relation to the presence of foreign languages was, I don't know quite what to call it, a, a, a sort of circulation of languages, if you like, um, but languages only as it were half known or guessed at or whatever else. So that through translation, I, I wanted to create a kind of situation in which A, languages um, had a free interchange with each other instead of being hermetically sealed from each other. And I think that that's why, naturally, I wish to shift away from the notion of uh, translation as a bilingual, strictly bilingual exercise towards one which was multilingual. Um, and to have a kind of situation in which the competence of the translator was not the factor that mattered above all else. Uh, that is to say, the competence of the translator set against the incompetence of the reader. And it's from that point, I think, that I began to 
really try and do what I could to unseat the notion that literary translation, and I emphasize literary, should be expressly for the monoglot reader. This seemed to me to be a huge mistake um, for a variety of reasons, which perhaps uh, we can go into mm. as this interview mm. unfolds. But th- those that's the basic starting point, I think. Well, thank you. That's a very, very powerful one. And they're two interconnected ideas, aren't they? Which is the, 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 the role of creativity in translation and the role of creativity in creating relations between languages. Yes. Um, and um, I, wa- I wondered what... Um, because at a certain point you, you talk about the, the source text and the, ta- and the target text, so the original text and the translated text, as, as being protagonists in the drama, uh, rather than, um, in other words, equal partners, uh, rather than the translated text trying to be subservient to, these, to the original one. Yes, yes. I, I think that, uh, uh, that one of the things that, that uh, uh, as you will have gathered perhaps from what I've already said, that, uh, uh, that translation uh, more generally seems to me to be about is uh, somehow um, undoing the watertypers of the various elements engaged within it. And uh, one kind of terminology that I've been using is, uh, uh, involves always preferring the notion of the morph to the notion of the jump. That, that is to say, it is uh, usual to, uh, when one's dealing with translation, to, ima- to imagine that there are barriers between languages, uh, which one has somehow to jump to find ways of uh, getting over the fence between them. Uh, whereas my argument, I think, is that there are uh, continuities between languages, which is what one really needs uh, to exploit, and that the real relationship between languages is one of of morphing or of metamorphosis. So the question is not how do I get uh, uh, how do I get over the barrier between one language and another, but how by a process of of intellectual morphing or creative morphing or whatever kind of morphing it happens to be, do I find the continuity between one language and another that that seems to me to be the essential point and one that one once one's on that path the path of continuities then the continuity as it were between all languages is what becomes available and that one starts thinking quite naturally in multilingual terms I know from our previous discussions that you're interested in the Martin Deacon writer Edouard Glissant. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm reminded in, in what you say about some of the things that he says about multilingualism, where he says, at a point he says um, uh, that multilingualism is not about talking, about talking a lot of languages, yeah. um, but about the, the effort and, and the desire to create relations between languages, Yes. Uh, which is an, an entirely, an entirely yes. different thing, I, I would say. Yes. Um, so does that chime in with the kind of... That, that chimes in very, very much, uh, I, I think, with what uh, what I would want to think. Mm-hmm. And that uh, uh, what's nice, of course, that one gets from Glissant lots of extremely useful uh, kind of geographical metaphors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the archipelago as a way of actually thinking about languages which have an, a certain independence, but which are bound within an encompassing structure and actually finding the the pattern of islands as it were is is really what translation should 
I think, be about. Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't, I think, go as far uh, as to say, as, as Glissant does, that, that on the whole one should beware of polyglots. Uh, 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 I'm sure that polyglotism is, um, is a wonderful thing. But his general point that one can, as it were, live within a group of languages without knowing them, uh, you know, from top to bottom. But in a sense, um, uh, being able, therefore, to capitalise on the dynamic between them is, again, hugely important uh, Mm. for the practice of translation, and particularly for the practice of translation in um, academic institutions in which, as I say, the actual notions of uh, of honours language programmes as being, as it were, the only way into languages has, has long gone, that we have to find ways of reinventing the relationship between languages, I think, and been. that translation is one of the ways of doing it. Sorry to interrupt, I was just going to say perhaps reinventing the, the relationship between disciplines as well. Um, uh, yes. And, and perhaps we'll come yes. back to that later, but yes. the role of translation in, uh, in, in developing... Uh, ways of talking across disciplines yes. which, which yes. don't water any of them down or indeed seek to merge them in each other uh, but to explore the dynamic tensions between them something of, of that order perhaps yes I mean, yes, I mean I think that there is uh, as you say that there is a natural uh, relationship between uh, the multilingual the multisensory and the multidimensional which naturally fact opens up language into uh, two other the input of other disciplines uh, that uh, uh, are productive yes um, uh, staying at, at the slightly general for, for the moment I mean I, I was struck uh, in, in a by a passage or two in, in um, translating and the perceptual textbook um, where you distinct where, where you try to talk about a, a phenomenology Yes, um, as a as a, as a powerful uh, idea to develop this notion of translation that you have, uh, drawing on but 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 opposing nonetheless um, sort of the sort of Derrida approach to translation, uh, which rightly or wrongly is is very much focused on loss, isn't it? Yes, and and, the, yes. and also rigueur, I think, uh, t- talks about uh, the grief of translating, which is something we need to get over. You know, yes. not get stuck in melancholy. In, in a, a, a tiresome melancholia, but move on to creative mourning type of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, whereas your argument is that it's not about loss at all. No. Um, uh, however productive those ideas may be of, of deferral, etc., and indeed mourning and, and getting yes. over grief. Yes. It's not about loss at all. It's, it's, it's about the, the plurality of languages um, contained and offered in their totality in the text itself that that's one's translating. Yes, I mean, I, I, I think that one should say immediately that, in fact, the task of translation is not, to, uh, uh, that is to say, of the target text, is not to recuperate meaning from the source text, but to actually generate meaning. Um, just as one might say that the task of a literary translation is not the preservation of a text which is already literary, but the projection of a new, uh, in a sense, a new text with a new kind of literariness that one, that the process of translation relocates the literary. Um, what I don't like is that kind of um, language of translation which says uh, this text has these particular characteristics. Um, 
connected with its literariness. Let's say it's rhyme, let's say it's alliteration or whatever. And these we must try and preserve without inspecting uh, the uh, proposition that even when two languages rhyme, the cultural uses of rhyme in those two different languages is completely different. Mm -hmm. That somehow some uh, equivalence is uh, identified and then clung on to. The awful thing is that then, uh, in fact, uh, uh, equivalences can't be carried out in the way that the translator ideally uh, would want to. And what then comes in is a notion like compensation, which is a notion of powerlessness, an essentially negative notion, and a notion which somehow acknowledges that this kind of translation is a fossilising process and not a developmental process, which translation as projection, I think, actually is. By compensation, you mean putting elsewhere in the text effects... That you, that you could that's do right. at, that's at, right. at the place that that's right if there, are fa- if there are five cases of alliteration even if we can't put them in the same place that they are in the source text let's get five other cases of alliteration somewhere in our own text yeah. this is balmy <laughs> absolutely balmy um, uh, another um, thought that you had in, in, the, in, in one of these books um, it strikes me listening to you talk now is asking the question is a reader of translation interested in the source text? Yeah. Um, I suppose the answer, there are a number of answers to that, but, but, but the question is, 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 is fascinating and provocative, isn't it? Because it does uh, focus the, the mind of what we do, our minds today on, on, on the pleasure of translation itself. The, as you say, the, the creativities that can be loosened up in translating and in thinking about translation. Yes, I mean, that there is very, very much, I think, this idea of what is, as it were, an interest in the source text, and that that interest is actually to create for yourself as reader or as a translator a certain within, withinness uh, within the source text. Now, the question, uh, uh, what one finds in a sense with uh, a lot of translation is the idea somehow that the language that you're going to use in order to uh, achieve a translation, is actually a resource. That, that is to say, one has um, in front of one dictionaries, thesauruses, and everything else, which one draws on. And that this keeps the translator in a peculiar way external to the text that they're translating. W- one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I'm also uh, suggesting that the translator should attempt to translate from the linguistic towards the paralinguistic, that is to say, from text towards the, um, those elements of the realisation of text, like tone, intonation, pausing, speed, loudness, all those qualities of voice, of the translator's voice, should be intimately woven into the process of translation in a sense as a guarantee that the translator is inhabiting from the inside the text that uh, that he or she is translating, that that's, as it were, part of that thing. So that interest in the text is is a question of, of intimate inhabitation as, as far as possible, I think. Which, uh, and that's... The intimate inhabitation of language requires 
more than just language to express. Yes. Um, yes. Um, yes. Exactly. And that, that that is what justifies drawing on a whole range of graphic, chromatic resources that uh, that aren't usually, I suppose, uh, uh, harnessed for you know for the process of translation. Uh, I'm sure our, our readers, uh, our listeners, would would like to hear you talk about an example or several of of, of your practices. Um, and one of them drawn from literary translation and the rediscovery of reading is, is your work on the, um, the, the work, the poem by Apollinaire, uh, called Marisibyl, yeah. uh, which was written yes. in 1912. Yes. Uh, um, so at, at the more modernising end, I suppose you would call it, of, of his work, and, and uh, included in Alcohol. And uh, you move from uh, um, a, a verse translation of his text to one that incorporates a collage of, of, of photographs yes. uh, drawn from, uh, from your own peregrinations uh, yes. around Norwich rather yes. than Paris, I think. Yes. Uh, so I wonder if you'd like to tell us a little bit how all that came about. Um, well, something, again, underlying, in a sense, needs to be said, that, that uh, I come back to what I said before, that, that uh, a... Uh, um, a translation should set out to be not uh, a recuperation of sense, which is already there, but um, a generation of sense. And I stress sense rather than meaning, because meaning itself strikes me as being precisely reductive and in that sense moves in the recuperative direction. Sense is a floating of potentiality, and it's a floating of potentiality where that potentiality can express itself in any number of of media languages means and actually translating language into photography makes that the sense of sense i think immediately apparent because what you have is an associative imagery uh, which itself has certain kinds of movement yeah, photographic the photographic fragments mm. that I'm using create a particular kind of dynamic, which isn't the dynamic of line by line. It's a different kind of dynamic demanded by a different medium. Mm. And so that this, that to get this kind of sense of the expansion of sense, of translation itself as this expansion of sense, so that text, text after text, version after version, becomes peculiarly open to a whole set of influences, which some of which are sh can be shared, some of which are idiosyncratic, but it's a proliferative process uh, that that one begins to undertake, and that the, the text, the text, any text, I am supposing, when it is written, has the huge, um, the the irresistible desire to proliferate. And that's how it survives, and that's how it expands, and so on. Well, that's certainly a, a, a very, to me, a very, very powerful evocation of, of the desire, as I understand it, of Apollinaire's writing, which is to to yes. to expand the idea of voice, to to to, to communicate. It's 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 an ethical, social uh, desire that he has to to communicate across boundaries, yes. across periods, yes. even yes, uh, in, and, and yes. bring voices together. And yes, it's. it's it's, to call it interdisciplinary is almost yes. laughable or interlingual. And, and no, no, no. So, there so is that. Yes. definitely intermedial in, 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 in the, his entire conception of the word. So what, what I mean by, by, by saying that kind of thing is, is that 
you know, what's so striking to me about your practice is, is your translations are not just pretexts, but they are, it's a backwards and forwards process between your engagement yes. with the text and, or your understanding of your engagement and your understanding of the text that yes. it comes from. Yes, so, the, yes, that the source text, that this kind of, the kind of reciprocity yeah. or dialectical process, however you describe it, that, uh, that one is talking about is something which refuses to leave the source text inert, that the source text must enter into this dialogue actually as an active uh, partner, as though it had unfinished business. <laughs> and uh, I think, as I say, that the, the, the translation, I, the kind of translation that I'm reacting against is precisely the, the kind of translation which demands that we translate the source text as it is, because for me there is no as it is source text, that the source text itself um, lives in a world where for its own good it always desires to be other, it always desires to be picked up by what it doesn't expect to be picked up by. Um, and reciprocity, I think, or, or uh, this kind of exchange, however one, is what ensures precisely, that the source text does not, as it were, uh, drift back into uh, uh, this immobilised. Uh, uh, one of the great, obviously, instruments of a text's immobilisation is, as it were, any move to sanctify it mm. or to give it a particular kind of authority. Um, and of course, when you start mucking about with texts, people do get indignant and say, look, you can't possibly do that too. But of course, doing that to a source text actually isn't changing. You know, the source text is still there. It, you know, one isn't somehow ridding no. the world of no, it or, quite. you know, it's there. It, it, it is both within an action and still it's original self. So it's not like it's, going to an original artwork and, and, and pasting... For no, photographs. Absolutely not. Absolutely uh, not. It's no. It's not the same exercise at all. No. Um, nor, on the, on the other hand, is it is it the same exercise as providing parallel texts, uh, where where the readers are, which I must have always been in favour of, uh, but as time goes by, I'm beginning to wonder whether the pa parallel text is particularly useful. Um, I mean, I wouldn't want to get rid of it, but it's not the only way of presenting language text in several languages because it does seem to encourage the reader to always compare one against the yes. other. Has the translator got it right? Oh, yes. that was interesting, didn't it? Yes. Whereas, um, uh, I wonder what the interest of that is. I mean, a person who reads the original will just read it in the original, and the person who reads translation will want to be moved by the translation. So, yes. Yes. Um, I think a parallel text is, is you know, I'll get to its uses, but, uh, but I don't, it's not the only way, is it, at all, of, of no, presenting but that, translation? No, but the way that one thinks about that, I mean, I think that if, if one says, as I want to say, uh, literary translation is not for the monoglot reader, mm. that, that is to say that the monoglot reader is not either just reading the target text on its own, nor is the monoglot reader using the source text in order to uh, compare it with the target text and learn its language. Mm -hmm. That is to say, to treat translation as a crib. Quite. Uh, if translation is going to be a creative work, then it, 
then the last thing it needs to be treated as is a crib. Yeah. And that I'm certainly for, as it were, bilingual editions, but bilingual editions on the assumption that the reader is not a monoglot reader, mm-hmm. and that therefore that what the, the, um, the bilingual edition will achieve is a measurement of the distance between two texts and the fruitfulness of their interaction. And there's something of the nature of the voice of the translator or translator yes. as well. Yes. That's right, yeah. Yes. Um, um, one, um, moving on to another example, if I may, yes. uh, drawn from literary translation, the rediscover of reading, uh, is when you, you um, engage in activities that are they're not translating from one actual language to another, but from English to other displays of, of English and of the English poem. And I'm thinking of Yeats's Later in the Swamp, mm. uh, where uh, you, you reorganize the poem uh, in a number of, of ways, visually displayed on the page, uh, which uh, bring out the, the, the experience of speaking the poem, the, the yes. bodily oral experiences of, of, of the poem. Yes, 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 yes. I, I mean, the, 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 the strange thing about it, I suppose, is that um, if one starts translating for the polyglot reader, uh, what that will tend to do is to make available the notion of um, intra-textual uh, translation alongside intertextual translation. Mm. Uh, that if one says, look, before you read this translation, you must know the language of the source text, then actually to say, oh yes, and the language of the source text actually does happen to be your yeah. native yeah. language. Uh, yeah. As it were, there is no, uh, there is no division is between that. Right. No, no. <laughs> um, and that, uh, of course, what underlies my, uh, my, as it were, my whole approach to translation is that what we are translating is not an interpretation of a text, but the phenomenology of reading. Mm-hmm. That, that is to say that translation should be an integral part of any process of literary reading, um, simply in order that one uh, discovers and confronts one's own set of responses, the way that one wants to read, and that so that these things don't, as it were, fly off into the great blue yonder um, as bits of anecdotal and impressionistic um, uh, uh, whimsy, yeah. yes, but are actually an integral part of the enrichment of the text that you're reading. Your own reading enriches what you read. And that in order, therefore, to get the full benefit of that process of enrichment, enrichment the reader's responses must be written back into the text that that person is reading. Uh, and that that's why, as it were, translation is necessarily, in some senses, an expanding and, as I say, proliferative activity because more and more is being pushed back into the source text. I must say, your, 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 your writing itself on, 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 on Merleau-Ponty, the sort of a phenomenological uh, philosopher, obviously, but I mean, your writing on that, philo- on that philosophical discourse itself enacts what you're, what you're talking about there, I think, because uh, not only does it, does it does it engage with it in, in, in your own voice, yes. uh, but also brings uh, that philosophy to life through the process itself of translation. Um, 
and, 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 and thought on translation, yeah. which makes it a dialogue, which translation a dialogue rather than a, a dead an exercise in contributing to a dead totality, yes. which would somehow be that the refusion of, of the source text and the translated yes. text magically brought together, which is never going to happen, and is, and is a, a dead object in, in any case, perhaps. Whereas your discussion of Merleau-Ponty makes philosophy and translation be about dialogue. Yes, I'm, pl- I'm, uh, I'm actually very glad you say that, in a way, because I, that, uh, just thinking about the way that um, uh, any discipline makes use of another, mm. of another discipline, mm. that, that what one doesn't want to do, in a sense, is read a book which says, uh, I'll tell you what Meloponti says, mm. as though there's no kind of going round it, or that there's, uh, that there's only one way of doing it. Uh, whereas what we know is that what's really interesting about the collision, let's say, between a literary critic and a philosopher or whatever, is the way the literary critic wants to read the philosopher and, of course, vice versa and so on and so on and so on. That, that reading with an eye to maximising what can come out of this other person's concepts is you know, a hugely important intellectual activity, isn't it? And the, the way disciplines understand each other because they have different ways of translating, you know, what a literary critic thinks about philosophy, uh, about Merleau-Ponty is not going to be the same as what a musician thinks or gets out of Merleau-Ponty. And we have to read all these translations in order really to understand what the possibilities of Merleau-Ponty's thought is so tra- ah, I mean, sorry. <laughs> translations are, is, is therefore a, um, a kind of crucial mental exercise, isn't it? As, as well as a, a, almost an ethical one uh, to, to, to make sure that, that languages um, are understood differently each time they're approached and each time a particular point of view is engaged, either it's an effective point of view or a disciplinary one. You know, so that dialogue uh, between people or between disciplines is not about merging them, but about loosening the creativity in each one yes or in all of them yes and in particular I suppose in the encounter between them yes and it comes back again to this the notion of, re- of reciprocity really mm. as you say not merging at all but actually uh, bouncing off each other and beginning to as it were uh, beginning to assimilate in different ways each other's otherness or taking it into account, making room for it, understanding it, uh, so that the whole thing is, um, is simply multiplicity, as it were, rather than this idea about, well, how can we reconcile X and Y? Well, we actually don't need to reconcile X and Y as long as we have a sufficiently broad, uh, encompassing uh, power to draw them in and that this again is why I'm not worried at all if um, uh, a particular work begets 3,000 translations uh, when so much of traditional translation is has in view somehow the perfect version which seems to me to be a, a ridiculous impoverishment of in fact what a text makes available. I must say, I, I couldn't agree more there. Um, and uh, with also the, the, the other, going, going to the general level again, the other general point you're making, which is, I think, the, the, the contiguity 
uh, without absorption of one and the other of the critical process and the translating one. So, you know, I'm, I'm mm. very sold on, on, yeah. on those thoughts, I must say. Um, I wanted to, for, for a moment, nonetheless, to, to, to play devil's advocate for a moment. Um, yeah. I mean, a mild way. Uh, um, with regard to notions of compensation that we were talking about before. Um, um, in, in my own uh, so far reasonably limited translation of poetry, I mean, uh, I'm, it, it, is, it, it starts from the, uh, the premise that you describe, which is the, the, the investment of, of the translator in, in what he or she is doing. In other words, you can only translate what it is that you hear. Mm. You, can, you, mm. you can't translate. You can only translate what you hear. Mm. Um, it's just that for me, part of that uh, might actually involve um, wanting to get some kind of sensation across in the English that I'm using, with mm. the sensations that I had listening to the French in my head. Mm. Um, and that might well involve just thinking to myself, oh yes, there are certain rhythms there, mm. there are certain rhymes there. I know perfectly well that that's not going to be the same over here, and I don't want to do that. But I've heard something of the sort, and I want to do something of the sort here. Yes. Um, and that might help me get into the, the specificity, if I can put it, not, not the, 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 the kind of enclosure of the text that I'm looking at, but nonetheless, the specific qualities of what I'm trying to hear. Mm. So, for example, I'm translating Césaire. Yeah. That's going to be very different from Glissant, who is interested in putting all these things in, in, in the, a kind of complex interaction between things, whereas Césaire is, is a bit more... Um, uh, he gets his optimism from a, from, from a rather starker sense of contrast. Um, mm. So I'd rather, you know, I'd, I'd like to be reasonably consistent about that type of thing and, and get get tension in, not necessarily the way he does, but where it strikes me and elsewhere that I might yeah. want to do it. So that sort of thing. Yes, yes. Uh, there are two things that I, that I'd say about about that. Uh, the first is, as it were, a, fa- a fairly gentle observation, um, uh, and it's just to uh, mark the distinction between a notion like compensation. Mm. And let's say a notion like displacement, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. uh, and that compensation, for, for me, mm. just uh, as it were, betrays mm. a, a negative frame of mind. Mm. This is the pis aller mm-hmm. uh, attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll do what we can uh, 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 to put uh, some weakness right. Mm-hmm. Whereas displacement has a completely different yes, kind of attitude yeah. behind it. And uh, the, you know, translation for me is is a question of attitudes, mm. attitudes about mm. how actually how positive you feel about what translation can do. Mm. In the second, the second point comes back again to um, writing translations for non-monoglot readers. Mm. A non-monoglot reader looking at the original mm. can see an effect. Mm-hmm. If one wanted to write a commentary on the source text mm-hmm. that would actually make clear to the reader, that's fine. But the, uh, that the reader sees the particular effects. The translator translates, and those effects are realised in a different way. The reader sees that. That is to say that the reader uh, is not duped 
in the way that a monoglot reader is duped. Compensation is forgery. <laughs> Whereas displacement for a non-monoglot reader isn't at all. It's... There's no treachery attached to it at all. And that this is what makes the word compensation itself apologetic. Because there is also built into it a consciousness that, I'm sorry, I'm having to come in through the back door. Yeah. Um, so that uh, you know, I don't really have a difficulty with with someone saying, <laughs> as they look at a piece, my God, I'd love, I'd love to find a way of, of getting that because it's, you know, it's exquisite. Mm-hmm. And one does it. One might say, well, actually, what I did is I, um, I couldn't. I, I did a little drawing mm-hmm. attached to the kind of, uh, attached to the word, which sort of floated off the word in order to get it. And as I say, the, the polyglot reader sees that and, and, and measures, as it were, measures the difference and measures the relationship and that that's really what, uh, you know, what that's all about, I think. I'm uh, opening uh, your, your book, uh, um, Literary Translation and Rediscovery of Reading, on a particular page where you translate... Um, it's a favourite page of mine uh, where you translate uh, one of Oedipus' sonnets to Orpheus um, and the, the, the uh, caption it says, figure two, translation with doodling of Rilke's follow up for Bernard und Baran yeah. um, and uh, um, it, it, it arises um, from uh, your discussion of a, of a different poem so um, your critical practice uh, the Adelstrop um, so your critical practice is moving always translating one poem into another poem or into another poet even uh, so uh, that, so that, sorry it's two questions really first of all that um, how you go from the from Adelstrop to the sonnet to Orpheus and then uh, if, if you'd like to d- d- just describe this is a wonderfully oral uh, occasion we have here yeah uh, in fact you'd just like to talk us through the, the visual impact or of, uh, of your translation of the Hilke poem yes I, I, the the um the Adelstrop, uh, the Adelstrop poem, is a way of uh, shaking out of that particular poem uh, things which are uh, uh, are hidden in it. I think, and which, in some senses, it makes invisible unless they are brought out. And that one mustn't. Um, while I don't like the idea of a translation which is making. Uh, works more um, uh, comprehensible because one smells in that notions of simplifications, reductions and everything else Mm. that the idea of actually making visible what is invisible Mm. or what is potentially invisible in a poem I think is a very different um, uh, exercise and one that, uh, again, it, it makes it very easy for me to uh, gravitate towards the writing of Merleau-Ponty because the in, precisely this invisible is something that uh, um, preoccupies him a great deal. I mean, we should say perhaps that Alstrom was a poem by Edward Thomas, who was yes. a so-called war poet who died at 39 at the front, didn't he, in 1917. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's uh, I, I would like to stress that because it's another example of, of, of for me, of the, of the fact that your practice is, is the opposite of a purely theoretical and philosophical. And it's, you know, it's, it's something very moving, I think, uh, uh, talking about rendering visible 
um, somebody who's, yes. who's, who's been through that type of experience. Yes. Um, and uh, you know, your translation as well as your comment on on on, on translating uh, are an exercise, I think, in in, in reading. Um, reading the life history behind that poem, if I can yes. put it that way. Yes, and I think that this, that, that in making the invisible uh, visible is part of this, as it were, uh, bodying forth of, uh, of whatever the poem has. And mm-hmm. bodying forth is, is obviously closely connected with uh, precisely translating uh, the linguistic into the paralinguistic, that is to say, in translating text into voice because the voice of the translator what the translator wants to do with a poem in terms of phrasing pausing tone and stress and so on uh, is all this bringing something which isn't there in a peculiar way in a printed text printed texts avoid erase the paralinguistic make it invisible Whereas what the translator do does is bring it out. Mm-hmm. Now, in my kind of mode of thinking, uh, paralanguage is to language as graphism, let's say doodling, mm-hmm. is to writing. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, as one shifts then from the Edward Thomas to Rilke, uh, doodling itself becomes part of this drawing, of actually drawing text out. Mm. That uh, what what a written word doesn't really want to do is to trail off into something which is just a graphism, mm. and yet you insist that it does because in that graphism is what perhaps the word doesn't want to say, or is hiding, or is. Mm. Uh, and so that there is, as it were, a natural continuity, as far as I'm concerned, with, with uh, trying to put text into voice and put text into handwriting, doodling, crossing out, um, and so on. Mm-hmm. All those other gestures, hand that, where the hand itself mm-hmm. operates like the voice, in fact. And again, it, it, it's, it's, it's producing an absolutely fascinating image where um, uh, typography is part of the, the medium of the poem. Yes. Uh, and it combines with, as you say, the, the graphism, which is strong uh, black arcs and, uh, and weaker lines as well, uh, interconnecting with, with, with the complexity of the punctuation provided by the typography. Yeah, um, and so it's it's a it's a fascinating exercise in itself. But I wanted to stress again that it is also uh, not uh, not simply a, a moving away from Hilke, but a moving back into Hilke, um, isn't it? In yes, this, in in the sense that yes. he himself is so interested. I mean, he is interested in in, in the metaphysical dimension of, of living and of, and yes. of communicating. But he's also interested in the, the very physical sensations of gesturing to each other and yes. speaking and yes. looking at each other and yes. failing to hear and, and this sort of thing. Yes, and, uh, but, yes. and the, the, the whole physical thing mm. of writing, you know, which again comes over so strongly, for example, in the notebooks of Malte Laurinsbrigger or uh, things like this, where the, the, the gestures of the hand mm. and their relation to thought 
that, that for lots and lots of existential psychological reasons will not declare themselves, do not want to declare themselves, and yet may declare themselves in something which is, is just a bit indecipherable or is another way of doing is simply another way of expressing it, uh, not verbally, a non-verbal graphism. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, these are things which, I, which somehow, I think, would, uh, would be the kind of things that would uh, chime in with his own particular mm. uh, preoccupations, his own sense of what writing, mm. you know, what writing is. Um, I'm uh, interested, I'm struck uh, uh, by, by the way this conversation is going in, in the sense that um, um, it reminds me of something else you do in the book, which is, which is talk about, um, well, how to put this? So I'm, I'm trying to get to, towards the idea of music. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, in your translation of uh, uh, the Elizabethan sonnets, the one by Nash, isn't it? Yes. Uh, there, there, yes. there are a number of, uh, you use typography. Yes. Again, to, to emphasise uh, the, the, the sound patterns in, yes. in, that you've discovered in the poem. Yes. And then you, you, you morph, as it were, you, you, you morph your typographic design into one that does start, to me, to look a little bit like musical notation of yeah. the Gregorian sort, sort of yeah. medieval, I suppose, musical notation. Yes. Uh, is, yes. is that something you, you had in mind? Yes, or, or, yes. I don't... I, I mean, I think, again, that one of the things that's very, very difficult to... if one says, look, I want um, language to find its extensions in paralanguage. That is to say, in things which are not verbal. Mm. But that is to say, tones, mm-hmm. degrees of emphasis, silences, and so on. I want writing to find its extensions in illegibility, in doodling, in crossing out, and so on. I want to the acoustics of poetry to find their extensions in something which is to do with noises, sounds, musics of various kinds, but music, musics that are, as it were, not connected with classical notation. Mm-hmm. That is pre-classical music or post-classical music, mm-hmm. uh, electroacoustic things, uh, you know, all the, the stuff that began, I suppose, really with the futurists mm-hmm. and uh, and to actually find ways of, of opening up uh, that particular connection, um, not uh, by, uh, as it were, importing music, but simply by, uh, by, uh, by pushing the, the, again, the, the graphisms of the page in in the direction, I suppose, of suggested musics that takes us away from phonemes, mm-hmm. you know, actually towards um, broader, uh, you know, uh, broader and more autonomous notions of, of of sound and noise and so on. It's actually it's actually um, an effort to, to make the, the the means of of, of communication. Actually, expressive in themselves, isn't it? I mean, yes, it's it's, it's undermining the uh, very large and very old distinction that we all live by of, of signifier and signified, isn't it? It's, yes, it's, it's making the the, the the words we're using now with each other yes. expressive. You know, that I'm waving my arms around. Yes, no, sure, is, is, is actually 
to be to be uh, to be incorporated in, in in the way we transcribe, and then that translation is a privileged way of doing that. Yes, I mean I don't. I, I, obviously, I'm I'm very very well aware of the kind of uh, of of contradiction that I'm. Uh, uh, toying with in the sense that uh, that I will uh, uh, say throughout the text remind the reader look I'm talking about not just performance of the text I'm talking about performance in the text yes um, and they say that's fine that's fine that's fine um, what what is just slightly more difficult I think to swallow is the fact that I'm as it were preaching the gospel of the body mm. in the text the phenomenology of reading, that is to say, f- the physical responsiveness, um, the, the, the existential involvement with the text, kinesthetic uh, connections. Mm. At the same time as I'm producing this all on sheets of paper, which actually require a high degree of conceptualization of what it is you know so that the signs themselves are very very physical but what they're asking you to imagine in a sense or to develop in your own mind is something which is almost pure concept of course because it's just a mark on a mark on a page and that this quite clearly again has a very very close connection with um, uh, with modern musical notation, where one where one has uh, music for reading mm. or music for writing, and no longer music for hearing, because the the scores themselves, you know, are conceptual. Yes, quite. So, uh, so I can't. You know, I'm happy. I I understand that that's a sort of well, it's an inevitable contradiction. It's the price that. One, that I have to pay, and I'm happy to pay it as long as everybody else doesn't think, you know, this is just cheating, <laughs> you know. Well, it's the price that uh, um, has a, a, a fantastic history behind it, doesn't it? A price to pay with a fantastic history. I mean, it, it is the it's the contradiction of, of, of avant-garde art, isn't it? Yes. To, to to attempt to change the world, no less, I think, you know, change the manner of, of, of the social world anyway, of social interaction, with marks on a page or marks yes. on, a, on a two-dimensional surface, yes. you know, and... Uh, I'm very glad you said that. Yes. Art will change yes. the world if we engage with it differently, because that will allow us to engage with the world differently subsequently. Yeah. Um, so it's almost as though you're, as it were, translating the avant-garde into translation, you know, making it backwards. Making well, yes, I mean, I, yes, I don't... Uh, again, as I hope I've made clear that you know the th- one of the things I deeply regret is that the the avant-garde has been constantly pushed to the margin, mm. and so that we've learnt nothing from them. Mm. You know that our mainstream has been very, very non-developmental in lots and lots of ways, and that what I want to do, and that part of actually the argument about making a uh, tran- uh, literary translation a literature sui generis is precisely that it is prepared that it is prepared to salvage and draw into itself and activate all that avant-garde's have have put before us in the way of experimental writing because my underlying argument is quite clearly that reading itself is an experimental uh, activity 
you know, in the real sense, you're trying to find uh, what kinds of voice one might use in order to read this, what kinds of tones, what kinds of... And one's reading is a constant experimentation uh, about which you don't need particularly to come to decisions. Mm. Uh, and that this, again, is why the notion of fair copy, which is the ultimate decision, mm. uh, uh, appeals to me so little. Mm. Well, I think your work is, 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 a, is an experimentation optimism as well. I mean... Uh, uh, it, it really is saying to to all of us, you know, that we do we do not have to leave our own language as we find it. You know, that no. there are other no. possibilities always uh, to to create new ways of of, of relating. Um, yes, it's a you know, it's, it's a big challenge to all of us, isn't it, yeah. uh, to uh, to actually rethink all the time uh, uh, the, the way we're the way yes. we're organising yes. uh, intellectual life or university life. Yes. Um, um, uh, but th this again is one of the things, obviously, that appeals that appeals to me in Melo Ponti. That this mm -hmm. idea that that it's the inaugurative power of language that we should constantly uh, look out for and make sure that we, that is part of our own use of language. That every time we do a translation, it puts us face to face again with the whole of language mm. and says, "Start again," and that that's what we do. And uh, uh, that is descending into, as it were, what uh, Meloponti would call the universe of language, each time afresh, saying, what I need of this universe, I don't know. When I sit, sit down with a source text in front of me, I've got to feel my way through my own reading of it towards those factors in all these languages, typography, um, doodling, you know, whatever they are, uh, painting, photography, language itself. Uh, or, uh, it is a wonderful moment of, of, of optimism in, in existential phenomenology, isn't it? Your existentialist phenomenology. Yes. Uh, to, 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 to put readers face-to-face -face with language and say language is not a... Um, you know, you, you mentioned yourself in the structuralist terminology, there's a kind of dead weight of language called in French la langue, which is yes. you know, the, the amorphous language that we all swim around in without ever knowing its dimensions. Yeah. And then there's something called langage, which yeah. is the language you and I are trying to use now, um, and which is on the move, yes. and which can be reorientated. Yes. Um, and as you say, Merleau-Ponty and, and, and you with him as a translator are making that into an organising principle, yes. you know, a practical uh, principle of, of, of relation. Um, and I think that's uh, it's extremely powerful. Um, I feel our conversation is, is, is coming around to where, mm. to where we began, which yes. is, you know, um, the role of all this within the university. Um, you know, what, what part creativity, uh, or, yes, creativity not only in translation, but in, but in inventing ways of, of knowing and disseminating knowledge. Um, um, you know, UEA was, uh, was established in, in a great wave of optimism, wasn't it? Yes. Um, yes, certainly. And do you yes. think that optimism is was fulfilled? And and do you think we can be optimistic about the future of, of the university in, in in the way that we're talking about now? Well, I think that uh, that it, uh, one of the kind of strange things is that there was a great uh, push, particularly towards interdisciplinarity and to the notion simply of multiplication. Mm. of our not knowing any more what the, what the actual parameters mm. of the subjects that we might be studying were. 
and that, w- that we could almost take them. It was a very, very heady time mm. where uh, you could take them in any direction. You didn't know where you were going to end and that one of the points of the seminar as opposed to the lecture or the tutorial is that a group of people like explorers would set out from a point that had been reached or from a new starting point or whatever the topic in that seminar was and just push out and that no one was silenced so that the group would constantly have to re re adapt itself because someone had happened to say oh no, no, I think I'd be thinking about it in this way. You think, God, blind, I haven't thought about it, you know. And so that it would be pulled in all kinds of directions and that the very process of teaching and learning itself was about the extension of boundaries, the multiplication of options. And one might go away, it's true, saying, God, well, where, where exactly did we get to? And you'd say, well, actually, it doesn't matter uh, we can all then go away and, and try and you know summarise what, what it is we did do, but we can't afford to let any of this uh, uh, liberating feel. We can't afford to have it repressed by our need to say, you know, well, we need to move from point to point, don't we? No, no, no. no. Now, now, a lot of that has changed uh, simply because of uh, the way that you know, what thinking about degrees is like now, you know. That's what you've got to get. That's what you train for. And we get a lot of school children coming up, coming up to us, obviously, through the system, having precisely been taught in that way, do what's necessary to get what you need. Uh, we're not entering into, uh, you know, a freewheeling intellectual thing where you actually discover... Uh, you know, what might interest you, (laughs) you know. Um, And obviously, you know, research assessments have had the same repressive effect. So that the world of interdisciplinarity and and comparativity and so on has has had its back to the wall, you know, for a long period of time after, since that burgeoning in the 60s. But one begins to somehow, I think, sense... That, that that there may still be a huge opportunity for it to simply because courses themselves have changed because there is so much governmental pressure to set up you know group research and so on and so on and so on so that people are prepared actually to come together and think well god we could do this in a in this kind of multifarious uh way so that I don't, I, I, I think I understand what pressures and everything there were that actually prevented interdisciplinarity, take, you know, taking off. And so that people have been using the word and using the word, but more in frustration and, uh, than anything else. But uh, in a, a university system where some of the old disciplines themselves, and particularly I think... This the whole notion, as I say, of honours languages, uh, that falling away, and the fact that English departments themselves will have, I don't know, say EU students mm. that have languages just floating around, mm. and that to envisage a translation, in fact, in which these 
the divisions between languages don't operate, the old bilingual thing, the cultural barriers that have to be overcome, untranslatability because you just can't do that in French. Mm-hmm. You know, all these things which were disempowering might just have fallen away and that one says, I don't need to know the whole language in order to see what's going on here or how interesting the relationship between these two words is or, you know. I think we still don't quite understand how to handle what I call the simply the circulation of languages. But that seems to me to be where you know, as it were, the the the, the optimistic mm. institutional uh, future lies. So there is some hope for some hope and some optimism in the idea um, that uh, people don't need to be all the time doing what they're told. I mean, because no. um, interdisciplinarity and the circulation of languages is uh, about setting one's own questions, and uh, um, isn't it? And, yes. Uh, and moving on from there and finding out what the questions are that each one of us has. Yes. Indeed, indeed, yes. And translation is, you know, for me, uh, a a, a central activity in activating this kind of... Yes, I can see why, because for all the reasons you've been saying, translation is a a major vehicle for telling people what they can't do or what they shouldn't do, isn't it? Whereas uh, it seems to me that you're turning it exactly the other way around and making translation precisely where we thought it was... uh, uh, an inhibiting procedure, an inhibiting system, uh, and exactly where we thought it was inhibiting, it, it need not be. Yes. At that very moment. Yes, yes, um, uh, yes. I think that that would be, you know, my my ultimate wish, as it were, that that is what translation precisely would do. Yes. Good. Well, Clive, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. No, well, thank you. <laughs>